0: Greetings, Seamheads, far and wide. I am Casey Light. This is the Blake Street Irregulars podcast on Mile High Sports, presented by our friends at Tap 14 Rooftop Beer Garden, located at 1920 Blake Street, with 70 Colorado beers on tap, 100 Colorado distilled spirits, amazing American alpine fare that's locally sourced and rotates seasonally with those rooftop views that will awe and inspire you year-round. Tap 14, the presenting sponsor of the Blake Street Irregulars. I am joined... Today, Monday, March 5th, by Doug Ottawa, the editor-in-chief of Mile High Sports Magazine. We're very lucky to have Doug here with us in the studio today because Doug spent a big portion of last week down in Scottsdale uh, with a lot of one-on-one time with the Colorado Rockies getting prepared for the April issue of Mile High Sports Magazine. So, Doug, welcome and uh, tell us, was it as nice in Scottsdale as we all think it is?
1: It was cold. It was uh, it was rainy the first day. I got off the plane. I was like, I "Wonder if I got on the right plane?" Because it never rains in Scottsdale. You know, spring training is always uh, it, for starters. It's a it's a really really fun experience if you've never been. I strongly recommend it. Um, but it was it's always kind of chilly in the morning until the sun really starts to come out, and then it's hot. It's, there's no. It's like you're either freezing. Or you're roasting. That's Scottsdale in a nutshell. But yeah, it was great. It was. Uh, it's a great experience. I think the biggest thing, at least for guys like us, is that you get a really uh, unique perspective of the team. You get a really unique perspective of the depth of the team because you get to see so many guys that are trying to make it or that are on the, the ball club's radar. And uh, and the access is just unbelievable. I mean, you get to, get to talk to guys very easily, very often.
0: Yeah, it's a very different vibe down and in spring training than it is, say, during the regular season in the clubhouse. Because, you know, while it's very important, the work that they're doing, especially for the veterans, uh, and, it's, and and most certainly for those guys that are lower down on the on the 40-man who are still trying to make the roster, or guys even who are non-roster invitees, um, like some of the guys that we talked about in the last podcast, guys who are, who are really trying to make their way onto this roster. Uh, but at the same time, for the, for the guys that know their role, that know that they have a spot on this club, Uh, It is a very relaxed, fun atmosphere, a lot easier um, than you might find in a game. You know, you talk to a lot of pitchers, and we're going to dive into that here in just a moment. But, uh, you know, a very different atmosphere in talking to a pitcher, maybe even potentially on the day that he's going to throw, whereas that's a complete no-no during the regular season. You're not going to be talking to that guy, uh, you know, ahead of his start when clubhouse availability is there. Uh, So, yeah, absolutely. You know, spring training, an awesome experience. We've got Eric Goodman and Les Shapiro, uh, along with Anilo Piro all down. Down there this week, so uh, keep an eye on Mile High Sports Radio, AM 1340, FM 1047, uh, for coverage from Eric and Les. They'll also be simulcasting their shows on Comcast, Channel 900 and 105, uh, so please check them out. They're going to have some awesome uh, stuff coming from... They're in Scottsdale, along with Anilo Pierl's work on Milehighsports.com. Anila will also be working on some pieces for Mile High Sports magazine, yep. uh, which is a big reason why you were down there. Uh, because you are writing the cover story, which is going to be about this pitching staff. And that's where I really want to dive into because you know there's so many expectations for this year. We talk about them in every podcast. You know, they want to build on the 87 wins. They want to win a game in the playoffs, not just get to the playoffs, but they want to advance into a multi-game series if they if they can win the the National League West for the first time in franchise history. That'll get them there. If they are a wild card team, they want to win that wild card game and advance into the division series. Uh, but to me, I've said all along, and, I, and I'll continue to reiterate this until I see a little bit more, all of that is really going to hinge on the starting pitching. Absolutely. Uh, you're writing about the pitching staff as a whole because there's been some major, major moves uh, in that bullpen, especially. But for me, I want to start with the starting pitchers because... They are the the linchpin in all of this to me. Uh, We saw last year with those four rookies who carried the load for so much of the season saw a lot of great things, uh, and I think sometimes the great things that we saw maybe have overshadowed a little bit of uh, the difficulties that each of those pitchers faced, because yes, you know, Herman Marquez was great, uh, you know, 11 wins, was was innings leader, strikeout leader for the club, uh, but he did have some moments of, of weakness in there, he didn't start out in the rotation, he actually started in the bullpen um, you know, Kyle Freeland, who yes, he tied Marquez for the team lead in wins, but was also only a 500 pitcher, uh, Antonio Sensatella who we saw fade mightily down the stretch because of the the number of innings that he was on. Jeff Hoffman, who never really fully put it together. Those four rookies have a lot of of things going for them, but there's also some difficulties that they faced last year that might be, in my mind, being overshadowed a little bit. Uh, And then the two guys at the top of the rotation uh, that you had a chance to, to speak with, which are John Gray and Chad Bettis, the, the more established pitchers. And we, it's funny that we say established because both of those guys are pretty young by MLB standards and by starting pitchers standards, uh, certainly in comparison to some of their NLS brethren. Uh, but you had a chance to speak with, we'll, we'll, we'll dive in with both, with Gray and Bettis. You had a chance to, to talk to them. Gray, you know, barring some kind of injury we know is going to be getting the start on opening day. Yeah. How has John Gray progressed? Because I think we saw him take a huge leap especially in once he came back from that injury last year. From the John Gray that was kind of you know that shaky, not really sure of himself, having trouble. You know the the Coors Field bugaboo was kind of biting him. Uh, if you rewind a couple of years ago to 2016, uh, to, to a guy who is very confident and is attacking and wants the ball in big game situations. Did you see all of that when you spoke with Gray? Is is he back in that mentality? Is he carrying over what we saw on the tail end of 2017 into 2018?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, and for those people who worry about John Gray and his confidence given the wild card game, I don't think it's that big of an issue. I really don't. Uh, he strikes me as a guy who's uh, excited to start the year. Um, he's confident in where he's at. I mean, because really, if we're if we're looking at John Gray, um, heading into last year, he had a, a pretty limited sample size as a rookie. I mean, he, he showed some signs, obviously, like a lot of these guys do. But he also was touched up here and there. Um, they shut him down because of his innings, you know, as a rookie. They didn't want to overwork him. And then last year, when when he came when he came in and got hurt, um, I, you know, I just I kind of get the feeling that he's fresh. You know, he he's not overworked. And I I really would say that as a staff in general that the Rockies have done a pretty darn good job of keeping these guys. Um, in good shape and not over I think they're very cognizant of it. I think they pay close attention to it. I think Bud Black is a guy who's constantly in communication with his staff and his pitching coaches and saying, who looks good, who looks tired, who needs a day off. And they really stick with that. They're very disciplined about that. And I think John Gray is a good example. And he's a guy that uh, I think he, he learned to pitch and and that's kind of the, the vibe I got is that he knows what's going to work for him. And he knows what's going to work at Coors Field. And, and I think the organization as a whole knows that. But I think John Gray really figured that out last year. Um, so I th- I think going into the season, he strikes me as a guy that is happy to, to take the ball as that number one guy. Um, and, and I think almost as much as anything, I think I think he wants it. We didn't get too much into the wild card game. But I, I do get the feeling that he wants to take the ball and just get get that behind him that's kind of my vibe and, and he's a, he's a strong presence in that clubhouse yeah that wild card
0: game that you mentioned obviously the 1.1 innings pitched and the four earned runs took the loss in that game his first postseason experience uh, certainly not the way that John Gray wanted to end a season that had otherwise you know minus the injury gone very swimmingly a 10-4 and four record last year uh, with an impressive three six seven ERA dropped his ERA almost a full point from that 2016 what we would call his true full rookie season Right, uh, had a you know a couple of uh, Uh, You know, a couple of starts, nine, in fact... um in, in 2015, but yeah, what I what really stood out to me there, you talked about John Gray learning to pitch, and I think what was so crucial in Gray's development last year was the development of a of a plus curveball and a and a changeup that he can feel confident in. When we saw John Gray come up in 2015, we knew he had that quote unquote wipeout slider. We yep. were very familiar with Live the arm, overpowering fastball. All fast those ball. things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what he has developed now are the complementary pitches that he has confidence in, not just that he thinks he might be able to throw and get a few outs with but pitches that he has some true confidence in Uh, you know baseball over the last several years has seen uh, a spike in the use of a true 12-6 curveball a lot of guys have gone back to this SI had an awesome cover story on the the return of the curveball you know because for a long time guys like John Gray with those overpowering arms would try and overpower you with their slider and you know as we saw last year with Greg Holland as we saw in John Gray's Rookie year in 2016, uh, the slider will only take you so far. It, at some point, you have to have other pitches that give guys different looks. And, and what I like about John Gray and the development that we've seen from him, uh, you know, on the second half of last year after he came back from the foot injury, and what we expect to see from him in 2018 is that he is, he is a guy who is going to go out and when his best stuff isn't working aka his fastball and his slider he can rely on those other pitches he can trust those other pitches and know that he doesn't have to beat you only with his best stuff right. and I think you know when we look at some of the other pitchers I've made a lot of comparisons to, to John Gray with Jeff Hoffman right Jeff Hoffman to me is John Gray 2.0 with this club he's got I mean a very very similar pitch profile looks the same I mean if, if Jeff Hoffman ditched the glasses and grew out his hair he'd beat be the John same guy, Gray, guy right yeah. uh, so you know you like to see that development what I love about John Gray, and one of the things that stood out to me that you were saying there is that he's taking on a leadership role, and I think that's really important because with such a young staff, you know, John Gray is only going to be 26 years old uh, this year, and it's crazy to think that he's one of the elder statesmen in that rotation at 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 only 26 years old. Um, It's important to have somebody like John Gray who can lead. Jeff Hoffman, you know, into that progression as a as a major leaguer. So I think you know I'm really excited to see what John Gray can do. Uh, put that you know ugly 1.1 innings pitch in that wild card game behind him. Uh, obviously, we you know we need to see him stay healthy. That's going to be the real key for John Gray. Uh, but you know you talked about the depth that this team has. And I think that's really the key of what, what Bud Black and Jeff Bridish have, have been trying to develop uh, last year. They thought they had it. And then all of a sudden it just vanished up in smoke with greatest foot injury. And that
1: will happen. It just, it happens to not just the Rockies, but every team your, your depth is going to go away, which is why I think it's such a good thing that, you know, you mentioned gray and Bettis and, and likely Marquez as being your, your top three guys. And, and I think, that's a heck of a place to start right there, especially knowing who your options are for four and five, or six, seven, and eight, if you want to get down into the farm, or 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 have guys in the bullpen that can can pull a start for you every once in a while. And that that's where I think that this team is in great shape because we know the top of the the rotation is is solid. Um, I think what's exciting is the the number of options that they have with with four through let's say eight if they want. I mean, they've they've got guys that, that could come up right now that they're probably literally just biding their time because they're waiting for someone to get hurt or someone to need a break or whatever. And I think that's a... That's a testament to the organization, top to bottom, of what they've done in terms of their pitching philosophy.
0: Yeah, we've we've seen some some surprisingly strong outings from guys like NCL Monte already this right. spring. Who I saw him
1: pitch; he was impressive, very he, impressive. Who's looked very good. But I,
0: I want to get back to the, those core guys that you talked about. Uh, you, you mentioned Chad Bettis and. and you know, we want to talk about Bettis because obviously we know the story from last year. In fact, you know, we we talked just a moment ago about curveballs, and and Chad actually penned a story for our April issue last year called "The Curveball I Wasn't Ready For," talking right. about his cancer diagnosis, uh, and then the recurrence of his cancer diagnosis. In fact, you know, just a little bit, peel back the uh, the curtain for everyone. We were ready to go to print uh, on that April issue last year with Chad Bettis being ready to resume his role in the starting rotation, right. and it wasn't until very late in the process. In fact, we were already. Ready, you know, almost to go to print, where we had to peel that back, and Chad had to add some additional pieces to that. Um, it, was a, it was a self-written piece, a really strong uh, and emotional story about him learning that he had cancer uh, and, and the process that he went through, the support that he received from the organization. We were ready to press print on that guy and then all of a sudden the recurrence happened and all of a sudden he's going back into treatment. He's going to miss a, b- a majority of the season. Um, really a tough year, but man, what a fighter Chad Bettis proved to be last year and such an amazing story. Uh, we'll have some more I- in this issue about Chad Bettis. Uh, but tell us where Chad Bettis is, is mentally. And then I also want to know what you saw from him on the field because if Chad was great at points last year, and he really, really struggled. And I think some of right. that is just a matter of that's that's going to be the nature of things when you've when taken you that much time de- yeah, off. Sure. Uh, and, and you're coming back from something that just ravages your body in the way the cancer treatment does. Uh, but what did you see from from Bettis from a mental standpoint? We know he's a, a, a tough guy. Uh, but what did you see from him on, on the playing field side as well.
1: Well I can tell you this. I mean Chad Bettis is in great shape. He looks physically very good. I mean if there's ever if there was ever or were ever any uh concerns about how he bounced back, there shouldn't be. I mean the guys he looks great. Um he's you know you get a chance to watch these guys as they you know kind of shift from workouts to, to pitching to back to the locker room to this, that, and the other. And I mean, he's a guy that's in constant motion. He's always working on his game, um, and, and you know, I, I think that that is um, one of these guys. You know, and you get this sense from athletes that go through this kind of adversities that he's appreciative of the opportunity to work out. I mean, it isn't a burden to him. I think it's it's one of those things that he embraces every day, and it shows. I mean, I, I think he's going to be fine. But Black speaks very highly of what he's seen from him already, so. I think Chad Bettis is is definitely going to have a much more consistent year based on the fact that he's gotten a full spring training. He's gotten his, um, you know, all the physical things taken care of. So, but then, you know, like you said, you talk about him mentally. This is a tough guy. And we talk about John Gray kind of assuming a leadership role. I think Chad Bettis already has a leadership role. I mean, he just, he's one of those guys that just carries himself um you know a lot bigger than he is <laughs> you know he, he's not that big of a guy but I mean he he walks around and, and, and you think he's a seven footer you know because he's just <laughs> guys respect him and, and I think for all the right reasons but I had a really interesting conversation with him and you know he's it, it's funny to talk about him as a veteran because he's also a still a really young guy relative to pitch yeah, he'll turn 20 he'll turn 29 in April yeah but he's seen a little bit of the Rockies and he's seen it when uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a thing when when everybody wanted to come pitch for the Rockies, and I'm not saying everybody does now. But I said, what's the difference? Why why do guys want to come here? And he said, hey, look, we're just we're not afraid to pitch at Coors Field, and I think that's an organizational mind shift. And Chad kind of embodies it uh, as much or more than anybody because between. Learning what does and what doesn't work, learning the profile of a pitcher that works at Coors Field, um, and also seeing a sample size of guys that had success, I think that really helps to tear down that wall of why you shouldn't come to pitch at Coors Field. And Chad's seen all of that. He's sort of seen that transformation. And the thing is, and I know we're going to get into some of these young guys, but the thing about the young guys is that they all had uh, at least – to a large degree, a lot of success last year as young pitchers, but I think the fact that they all came up and they came up through the organization outside of, say, Marquez, but he, you know, he, he, uh, he's young enough to sort of be moldable still. Um, they all don't come in with this big worry. I think that's a big thing, and when they all came in, not thinking that or not worrying about that. Um, they experience success, and and people take notice of that, and it's contagious. And if you know if if Kyle Freeland can have a great game, well, so can Sensatella, and, and and so can Hoffman, and and even older guys that come in after the fact, guys that re-signed McGee, you know, all, all these guys. And I don't want to get into too much of the bullpen and all that, but you know, they I, I think there's a, a body of work that's beginning to be built that shows. You could pitch here.
0: Yeah, and Chad Bettis definitely showed that back in 2016 when really it was a, a season that I think sparked the hope for a lot of Rockies fans and a lot of those of us who were in and out of that clubhouse throughout the course of the season because there was that point where we were th- where we were saying, hey, this is this could even be a 500 club. They were flirting with 500 Absolutely. fairly late into the season. And a lot of that had to do with Chad Bettis in the year that he had. Uh, 2016, 14-8 and with a 479 ERA, led the team with 186 innings pitched. And, you know, we sometimes forget that Chad Chad Bettis was a second-round pick uh, because it was so long ago. It was 2010 when he was drafted out of Texas Tech. Because he did have, you know— not by Major League Baseball standards necessarily a long road to the majors, but he didn't really have that big breakout season until 2016. Although at eight and six in 2015, uh, over his 20 starts, you know, nothing to, you know, nothing to, to shy away from there. I mean, a, a decent, uh, little performance from him there in 2015, but we kind of forget that Chad Bettis is a guy that, that should really have some fairly high expectations as a second round pick. Yeah. Uh, and he's, he's really met those, uh, from the standpoint of, of what he did in 2016, if if memory serves, he was one of the few w- winning pitchers that year for the Rockies on the plus side from from a starter standpoint. But you also saw that same year in 2016, Tyler Anderson have some success very early on. And so, y- what you didn't see were these guys who are are just you know like Gray. I think Gray is kind of a different animal than maybe Chad Bettis or or Tyler Anderson in that. You know, gray has the big build and the big fastball, and that you know he's he's got that look to him like this is a guy who could go out and, as we've seen him do, strike out sixteen dudes in a game right uh, whereas you know Chad and Tyler aren't necessarily those types yet they still had quite a bit of success and laid that foundation in two thousand and sixteen so that those young guys saw what was happening at the major league level and saw what well, okay, yeah this can this can be successful we we can have have some some. You know, successor. We don't have to be scared about pitching at this place. And you know, you, you spoke to a couple of the pitching coaches, and I, I'm curious to find out a little bit because they're really at the core of that philosophical shift. Absolutely. And, and, and they're guys who who you know, some somewhat new to the organization, and. Uh, uh, some that have been with the organization for a long time, but Black obviously is is the manager's role at the at the top of that. Uh, he's new to the Rockies in the sense that 2017 was his first season with Colorado, but he's not new to baseball and he's certainly not new to the National League West. You've got Steve Foster, who's the pitching coach for the Rockies, and then you've got Darren Holmes, who was you know a longtime Rockies and one of right. the few guys that had you know we will call it rocky's success sure right? i think that's a good way to put you, it you can't you can't say that that darren holmes especially in a pre-humidor era if, if you stacked his numbers up side by side with anybody in baseball at that same you can't time look
1: at you can't look at rocky's pitchers especially in the past and and look at their numbers at face value you have to look at them relative to other pitchers in the organization or even pitchers in that era i mean there was some there were some guys in that era that pitched in a really live ball kind of Major <laughs> yes. League Baseball. And so, you know, the it, the numbers are, and Holmes, like you said, is a great example of a guy who who understands success at Coors Field.
0: So you had a chance to speak with all three of them. How do you see it from, from the coaching perspective, from the organization's perspective? What's different with the way that they're approaching these guys now? What has changed versus, you know, where they were maybe even three, four years ago uh, under Walt Weiss, And and with this mindset of we're just hoping to scrape together some guys, I mean, the the old, you know, we could rehash the paired pitching concepts and all those crazy ideas that, you know, they've been trying to just, you know, they've been trying to put their finger on what works at Coors Field for so, so long. What is it that they have their finger on now
1: that seems to be giving them this confidence? Sure. I think there's there's three things that I would identify. One, and this is something Darren Holmes said, he's they try to go get guys that are four seam guys. And they, they feel that that is a uh, a type of pitcher that will work, a type of pitcher that they can mold, and a type of pitcher that they can teach. To your point earlier about John Gray, about having that 12-6 curveball that he's not afraid to throw anymore, that if they go get those four-seam guys, they can teach them all the things they want to teach them. And And I say moldable, too, because that's another big thing with them is they get guys that don't come in thinking this is the kind of pitcher I am. They get guys that are ready to learn. And you, you see that because they're so young. Um, the second thing is that I, I think they have a philosophy now, which in the past they did not, that they want guys who are not pitched to contact guys. They want guys that have the ability to strike people out, have the ability to make guys miss or, or, or miss enough that they're not getting a solid bat on the ball. And I think in the past, and and, and you, know, you have as good a recollection of this as anybody – that that has shifted, that theory has shifted off and on. Of we want guys who are big fastball guys that can that can just overpower everybody. And we want or we want guys that are ground ball uh, pitch to contact guys. Aaron Cook. Right. And, and I think that that, necess, that that philosophy has sort of changed and ebbed and flowed over the years. Now I think they're saying we want guys who don't pitch to contact. We want to try to get guys who have control but have the ability to strike people out. And it, it was put very simply to me, which makes a lot of sense. They're playing the biggest ballpark in the majors in terms of total real estate. And so when there's contact, because there's so much space, there's a better chance for bad things to happen. And it's that simple. Yeah. And I think I understand that, hey, let's let's get ground with ball, guys, because we sure don't want people to hit home runs at cruisefield. Field. I think they'd much rather give up a home run than give up, three bleeding infield hits. Well, and the problem with three bleeding infield hits is if you give up the home run after that, exactly. now all of a sudden you've, you're looking
0: at a, you know, a yeah. very, very crooked number up there on the yeah. scoreboard.
1: You the, know- uh, I was, I was going to say the third thing is that they, they have <sighs> a plan and, and I, that sounds so, uh, coach and corporate speak or whatever, but I really believe, and none of the guy, all the guys were, were, you know, between, uh, Foster and, and Holmes and even Jeff Braddich, they were all very, uh, careful with how they answered this but I had the feeling that prior to Jeff Breidich there there was a lot of different things going on from the very bottom of the organization from the top of the organization and they weren't all the same at this point in time every pitcher from the lowest of low level to to John Gray is learning and doing the same thing everything from how they pitch, how they approach their, uh, their scouting, how they uh, develop in terms of when they add certain pitches to their repertoire, and all of that's the same. And I think prior to Jeff Breidich, you know, I don't think people necessarily were, were teaching things completely different or having massive disagreements within the organization. It just wasn't a uniform plan. And I think it's, it sounds sort of silly to say, hey, now they have a plan. Now they have a plan and they've really implemented it and they, they've they been able to do it for three seasons and I think now we're just seeing the fruits of that.
0: Yeah, I would compare it to, to the Los Angeles Dodgers who we know obviously are a great organization. Um, they've got a ton of money to spend. They pitch at Chavez Ravine, which is a very, very pitcher-friendly park. And the Dodgers have the flexibility to go out and grab anybody they want. They can have a Kenta Maeda. They can have go out and spend a bunch of money on a U Darvish if they want to or, or make a trade for a guy like you Darvish. They can throw out a, a Clayton Kershaw. Guys with a variety of different pitching styles and looks. And what, what really kind of stood out to me... Uh, in that last piece that you were talking about was going after these four seam guys, and I think what the Rockies have started to really pin down and identify when we talk about a four seam guy who is a blow it by you versus a pitch to contact guy. So so let's let's compare the ace from one of the you know sort of prior you know pitchers eras of of rockies baseball a guy like aaron cook right or 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 throw in another guy who was successful at that same time jeff francis right
1: which is funny because francis the epitome of not blow it by you.
0: yeah absolutely and both of those guys were hey we want we want as much movement as we can get on the ball we want guys who throw sinker balls we want guys who are going to change speeds but they're going to work down in the zone they're going to get those ground balls and look when you got nolan Arenado and dj LeMahieu in your infield and trevor story in your infield, you want to still get ground balls. Let's not make any mistake about that. Uh, but to me, and, and I'll, I'll tell a little personal anecdote that I think ties a lot of this together what was the danger with that and we saw this you know with greg holland last year is that when you have a guy who relies heavily on a movement pitch whether it be a, a cutter or a two-seam fastball or a slider uh, those pitches put a lot of strain on the arm right when you're trying to make the ball right. and, and, and you, you sometimes you think oh snap. yeah I- exactly that can be a lot more damaging to an arm than ju- than throwing hard than just trying to throw hard four-seam fastballs and a two-seam fastball is going to move more than a four-seam fastball just by its very nature. A four-seam fastball is going to have some rise to it. It's going to be a little bit straighter, but it's also a power pitch. It's it's a pitch that doesn't require you to put a lot of torque on your arm. And so, from a personal anecdote standpoint, I was never a blow-it-by-you guy. I probably topped out when I was in college. I probably topped out fastest pitch, 87, 88. I was routinely around an 84, 85 guy, so I was relying heavily on movement. I was your Greg Maddox type, right? Through a lot of of movement fastballs, a lot of change-ups, and things like that. And when I went away to college and played down at sea level, uh, it I realized, whoa, my changeup does a lot of really amazing things that I didn't know it could do previously. And I, I right. went very heavily on that pitch. It was a pitch that put a lot of torque on my arm. And when I came back to Colorado to play summer league ball in, in a very high level summer league at the time, the pitch wasn't doing what I wanted it to, and so I found myself overcompensating a lot and put a lot of strain and damage on my arm, and that ultimately ended up costing me a lot of, of both velocity as well as movement and eventually drove me out of the game. And I think the Rockies have identified that they can't rely on those types of guys long-term. It's what, If you look at a guy who, who probably had the best chance for success in the past was a guy like Ubaldo Jimenez. Jimenez still threw a, a significant amount of cut and two-seam fastballs, but if he just would flip the ball over, he would, would have really had a strong, solid four-seam fastball. He was about as close as you ever saw from that. And so, you know, you see that whether it's a guy like even Tyler Anderson, who Tyler Anderson could throw, a, he could throw a two or four seam and, and be effective no matter where. But the Rockies understand that, hey, trying to force him into being a two seam pitcher is going to be damaging to him long term. We'd rather have him focus on getting a, a plus curveball and a changeup that, that is honest enough to keep guys off balance, but not something that's just going to be this fall off the table type of a pitch that it might be if he were pitching for, say, the Dodgers or the Astros or someone else. So, that organizational shift, I think, is so, so important, and it's going to help keep their guys healthy more so than anything else. I think that's what's really critical in all of this, is making sure that these guys arms stay healthy, because the strain that pitching at altitude can put on an arm is unlike anywhere else. It doesn't even if you're down in in Arizona, which is another huge ballpark and gives up a lot of runs, it's still a different process pitching at altitude here in Colorado than it is pitching anywhere else. And so, you know, I think it's great that they've that they have identified that and that they're going out and seeking out those types of pitchers, not just on the front end, but also on the back end. And you've seen that with the shift in the bullpen uh, over the last couple of years if you think back you know a guy you know they brought in a guy like boone logan a few years back um who didn't really pan out now you've now you see someone more like a scott oberg who is just you know country heat jake mcgee right. straight country, country just heat. I like that. just throwing it you know just blow it by you. and it's guys, really true guys like wade davis and brian shaw you had a chance to, to chat with davis um he's he was obviously the hot name um you know, a little bit of an icy personality, but you want that from your closer, right? He was a hot yeah. name in, in, in the offseason because he got that big, huge contract, but not, not always the most approachable guy, but maybe that's not necessarily a bad yeah. thing from your closer, I, right? I think
1: chat would be an overstatement. <laughs> uh, uh, Mr. Davis, uh, I, I see you doing your uh, Sudoku puzzle there. When you're done, can I get a word? And I kid you not, I got the iciest stare I've ever got in my life. <laughs> and I said... <laughs> When you're done, Uh, you know, not now. And when you're done, well, I got to do some workouts and stuff. I said, all right, I can, whenever you tell me. And then he just said, okay, let's do it right now. And so, you know, what the funniest answer that he gave me was, I said, uh, okay, last two years, and both, both of you guys are former Royals, you know, top closers in the market, Holland and you come to Colorado. And I said, five years ago, that's that was laughable to con- to think that the best closers in the game would come here i said what changed what what conversations did you have what did you learn what uh, you know what part of the process made you think yeah this is a this is a good place to come and he just looked at me and he said i'm not too familiar with the past of this organization and i i wanted to you know call bs I mean, everybody's <laughs> familiar especially a pitcher yes Um, but I do think that it is, it's sort of that shift in mindset. And I think that one answer sort of helped, uh, you know, Chad Bettis told me no one's afraid to pitch here. Now Wade Davis told me not only are we not afraid to pitch here, we're not even going to acknowledge that that's a viable question. And I thought that it was kind of interesting because, you know, some people say, Oh, Wade Davis, you know, he was a top closer last year, but he sure started to slip at the end of the season. And, you know, he's not the same guy. I I mean, obviously, t- only time will tell, but I didn't get the impression. You know, a little bit like Greg Holland last year. He came in, and I talked to Greg Holland last year, and he, he was one of those guys who was hellbent on proving everybody that he was going to be just fine physically and that he was the same pitcher he'd always been and he was going to be good. And you know what? He went out and did it. I get a little bit of that same sense from Wade Davis. If there was any grumblings about him slipping at all toward the end of last season – I think he's going to be pretty hell bent on proving people that that was incorrect, that he's the same guy. Um, and yeah, I I just like the fact that, um, you know, when you're when you're writing a story and you're trying to get an interview with somebody, you tend to do a little bit of googling to see what's out there already and what people have said or what people have written or maybe what that particular player has offered up in terms of quotes and things like that. Well, if you Google Wade Davis Rockies. There's very little out there. He does not want to fool around with the media. He doesn't want to do photo shoots. He doesn't want to do a lot of lengthy interviews. Um, Even some of the other beat writers that I talked to down there, you know, a guy like Patrick Saunders, who's there all the time and basically getting every story that's ever coming out of the Rockies. Even he said, I'm still kind of waiting to get anything significant from Davis. I mean, he just, and I'm not saying that to say Wade Davis is a bad guy by any means. I just think he's intently focused and he doesn't uh, give a crap about all the pomp and circumstance. He just wants to take the ball and go mow people down. And I think spring training is one of those things of like for a guy like that, yeah, he's going to get himself tuned up. He's going to get work, you know, lathered up for the regular season. But you know what? Just give him the ball. He, that's what he's That's what he's all about. He does not want to talk to us about this, that, and the other. And he sure doesn't want to talk about why he came to Colorado and the kumbaya factor of all this blah 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 he just wants the ball and he wants to go well
0: you kind of mentioned the out of sight out of mind philosophy for for Wade Davis and I think that's a little bit of it is is I wasn't a part of that it didn't really happen it didn't matter to me we're moving on you know it's Bill Belichick you know we're on to Cincinnati um (laughs) he's he's on to this year and and you know, for anybody who wants to say that Wade Davis struggled down the stretch last year, just uh, some some basic numbers. But his ERA in September and October was a 2.77, uh, which was uh, the third lowest month of the year last year for him. Uh, he notched five saves. What was really impressive to me was that his strikeout to walk ratio. He was a 5.25 um, strikeout to walk ratio uh, there on the tail end. So maybe. You know, from a from a optic standpoint, it seemed like there were some some hiccups there and maybe in the playoffs. Um, but, you know, down the stretch, he was just as strong uh, as he was throughout the entire course is a of the big year guy,
1: too. I mean, that's the thing that I guess when you when you watch a guy on TV, you see him from afar. You know, you have an impression. But when I walked into the locker room, he is tall and long. I, I mean, to your uh, earlier, you know, sort of observation about John Gray being kind of the workhorse, physically that type of guy, Wade Davis is that guy. I mean, he's, He's big, he's he's kind of just lean and mean, and he really does come across as someone who could be pretty intimidating on the mound.
0: Well, he's got seven inches on the closer from last year, Greg Holland, yeah. is listed at 5'10". And I believe that, Wade too. Wade Davis, who is, uh, comes in at an even 6'5", 225. Uh, it's funny, you mentioned uh, Wade Davis uh, doing his Sudoku, and there is one thing that he shares beyond just being a former royal with Greg Holland is a passion for Sudoku. Uh, <laughs> right. Holland was definitely one of those. Same, same mentality, though, and, and I think that's prom. If if you liked what you saw from Greg Holland last year, uh, Wade Davis very much a carbon copy of that. You know, Greg Holland uh, very much a pro's pro. Did not want to you know bother himself or waste a lot of time with you know yokels like us trying to you know get
1: get to the bottom of very the- very similar personality. Greg Greg Holland was maybe a little more open to chatting. Uh, Wade Davis wanted nothing to do with it. About as close as I got to a smile was me uh, admitting that I followed the Royals and Oh, Oh, that's cool. You're the, you're the guy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, so yeah, I would not say a bad word about Wade Davis. I would just say don't expect to have, you know, uh, warm and fuzzy type of conversations and i will take that from a closer all day long you want that you want
0: a guy who's going to send shivers down the spine of opposing hitters and that's who wade davis is so it's it's good to know that that you've reinforced that and that's what we can expect now another guy who's got a huge arm uh but a huge personality and a lot of fun is carlos estevez uh he like we've talked about is one of those power pitchers uh he's a young young guy uh we've we've seen some really good things from carlos estevez we've also seen some struggles Uh, Tell us, you know, where is Wild Thing as we head into the 2018 season because it was kind of a rocky up and down year for him in 2017.
1: He's he's loose. I mean, you know, the compare and contrast to him and Wade Davis. I mean, Wade Davis is the guy you probably don't want to talk to, and Carlos Estevez is the guy you will walk across the entire locker room just to say what's up because he's a nice guy. He's a friendly guy, um, but he does he does seem loose to me. He he seems like he's in a good place. Um, you know, I talked to him a little bit, kind of going back to our earlier conversation about Gray and Bettis and kind of their readiness for the season. And I would put Estevez in that category as well, in terms of being ready to pitch, ready to go excited about the season. But he talked a lot about the fact that all those guys came up together. They all had this very similar experiences coming up through the minors. And when I say all those guys, I'm talking about him, uh, you know, Hoffman, um, Freeland, uh, all all these guys that, that, that came up through the system and were a part of what I was talking about. The, the plan that, that and Holmes and Foster sort of laid out. And this was three years ago. They all got to be a part of that, part of that progression. So when they got to the majors, they were ready to go and they all sort of had this um, similar path and similar experience or lack thereof. So I think when, When that group got up there, none of them were sitting around going, man, how does this work up here? Or all these guys have been here and I haven't. How am I going to fit in? They all just kind of got thrown into the deep end at once. And I think it was a great, great way to make those guys work and work together well.
0: Yeah, the thing that excites me about Estevas being in this bullpen this year is with the with the addition of Brian Shaw and Wade Davis, you don't have to rely on Estevas to be a plus side guy necessarily. Um, and, and I think with with what we saw from Scott Oberg last year, who proved himself to be a very versatile guy, uh, you don't want Estevas only coming in 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 minus situations, obviously, because that's not going to help him long term um, from a confidence standpoint. But right. you know, when when he did have that relatively successful 2016, and it was up and down under under Walt Weiss, but he did have 11 saves. He finished out 26 games for the Rockies. Uh, you know, he saw the ERA bump up a little bit last year five two four in his his rookie season, and then five five seven last year. The big difference was, uh, you know, almost 20. 20- three innings fewer pitched last year. So Bud Black didn't quite have the same confidence or maybe necessarily the same necessity to throw a guy like Carlos Estevez, you know, the addition of, of Nishek at the end of the year, I think sort of moved Estevez out of that role. Um, Oberg coming on and becoming a little bit more reliable, obviously the great year that Chris Russon had. So, you know, Bud Black didn't have to rely nearly as much on Estevez, uh, a very young pitcher at, at 24 last year, Um uh, in those same kind of high leverage roles that, that Walt Weiss was turning the ball over to him. What I like is that with the addition of a guy like Brian Shaw, y- you have not only somebody who, who takes some of that pressure off of Estevez, uh, because yes, Estevez had fewer innings pitched last year, 32.1, saw the ERA climb, but he was also perfect 5-0. and So when he was, when he came in in situations where he had the opportunity to swing a game plus or minus, he came in in a, in a tie type of a situation, Came through. he oftentimes came through for the Colorado Rockies, or he kept them in in a game enough to give them a chance to come back so that to me you know you can't put a ton of stock in relievers win loss but when you're looking at a guy who's coming in in a in an even situation or a minus situation who ends up posting you a five and0 record for the for the season uh, that's that's promising and you've also got him learning from a guy like Brian Shaw who is an absolute workhorse because I can see Estevez developing into that potentially at some point I can see him being you know an 80 90 plus inning type of a guy because he's got the build he's got the frame he needs to improve a little bit in terms of of his maybe work ethic off of the field and in, in, in building up some lean muscle, building up some better. He's you know, a baby,
1: maybe, yeah. I mean, he's he's still got a little baby fat, and I don't I don't know that that's a, a inexcusable thing by any means. But you're right. Yeah. Well,
0: and and you see that not just with with Estevez, but uh, there's a piece not too long ago uh, on MLB.com about Antonio Sensatella doing the same thing, right? Antonio Sensatella realized last year, hey, my diet can't be exclusively pizza. And, and I, it's it's funny because, you know, I think Estevas kind of falls into that same category of when these guys realize how valuable it is, when they get that Charlie Blackman, DJ LeMayhew work ethic, you know, kind of burned into them from a pitcher standpoint, they're going to take that stamina leap and they're going to become a lot more durable, a lot longer, uh, you know, longer arms for Bud Black to be able to use, whether it be Sensatella in a starting role or a bullpen role, he could really fall into either one of those categories this year. And then Estevez out of the bullpen. I think we're going to see him take a big leap forward. Uh, you know, we see this with with a lot of Rockies pitchers where in that first year they come in and they're a little bit, you know, they, they, they show some real promise and give you some real excitement. That second year, maybe things level off a bit to a degree and that's you know i think to, to bring it all full circle that's a little bit of my concern with guys like marquez uh like kyle freeland and, and maybe we'll wrap with with talking about kyle freeland because you know freeland definitely had an even keeled year there's so many comparisons that that i see between john gray's first full season where he finished 10 and 10 and Kyle Freeland's first full season where he finished 11 and 11, uh, where you saw some just really lights out performances from them, but you also saw some really Rocky performances. How does Kyle Freeland avoid a step backwards? How does he build on a 500 season where he had some really outstanding outings and and not have that sophomore setback?
1: Well, I think it's, it's, it's all you know, trusting what he's good at. And that's one of the things that he talked to talked to me about was, you know, a constant reinforcement from the organization to go do what you're good at. Don't try to do things you're not good at. And if you can add a pitch and if you can, you know, do those kind of things, great, but if not do what you do. And I I think he has a a real firm understanding of that. And given that he's one of the few lefties, you know, as a, as a starter, I think he's, he's probably got a a spot uh, is my guess. Um, even though he could be one of those bubble guys, could be a bullpen guy, could start the season, I I, I think he's he's in your rotation. I really do, um, and I think he's confident. And I think that's another you know thing that you have to like about a second year guy. I know that Bud Black has talked to all of them about let's let's not have this this, this sophomore slump. And I think part of how Bud Black is going to manage guys like Freeland is with a very key focus on not allowing that to happen. So I think with with regard to Freeland, Hall, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Sensatella. You know, you, you go down the list of these young guys. Um, I think it's going to be a shorter leash if they're having trouble from Bud Black, and I think it's going to be with that, or it's going to be let him pitch out of trouble because he wants to have them give them that confidence that he that he, that he's you know got their back in situations. So I think with, with Freeland, I, I think that he's got a spot if I had to bet and I think he he comes into it as confident um I just think he's a he's a solid he's solid pitcher I I really do think that there's not a lot of holes in what he can and can't do it's just a matter of going out and doing it yeah I, I would agree I think Freeland is is as much a
0: lock for the rotation as anyone else at this point especially given that we don't quite know yet how Tyler Anderson is going to bounce back from that you know off last year with the knee problems that he had. Uh, you know Freeland, you know his ups and downs had nothing to do with his health. They really just had to do with inexperience more so than sure. anything else. Uh, very thankful for Kyle Freeland. I uh, want to say thank you again to Kyle uh, for appearing on the cover of the February issue of Mile High Sports Magazine in both his Rockies and his Thomas Jefferson Spartans uniform. If you've not yet seen that, please go to MileHighSports.com, click on Subscribe, and check that out. You can look at individual. Issues there. Uh, we are moving on to the March issue of Mile High Sports Magazine, which is our Rapids preview. We won't be talking about the Rapids here on the Blake Street Irregulars podcast presented by Tap 14, but very soon we will be talking more in depth about the content that's inside of the April issue, which is the Baseball and Rockies preview. For 2018. A lot of great stuff, Doug. So thank, uh, thankful for you for joining us here on the program. Do want to remind everyone that the Blake Street Irregulars podcast is presented by our good friends at Tap 14 at 1920 Blake Street, just a half block from Coors Field with those 70 Colorado beers on tap. 100 Colorado Distilled Spirits. American Alpine Fair that is locally sourced and rotates seasonally. Terrific rooftop views all year round. Uh, March Madness is just right around the corner. Get out there and check them out for the tournament we've broadcast live there for a couple of years uh, and it's a great place to watch the games you can follow them at tap xiv on twitter or find them at tap 14.com doug i know you've got a lot of interviews to go through and a lot of content to start putting together for this april edition of the magazine so i'm going to let you go but i want to say thank you very much you bet for joining us on the blake street regulars podcast presented by tap 14 i may bring you back on thursday because you were just down there there was so much to talk about uh Really great stuff. I want to get into this Nolan contract situation. News came out over the weekend that Nolan is not going to be uh, engaging in dialogue with the Rockies uh, over the course of the 2018 season, but that is a little bit in conflict with some things that Jeff Breidich has said. Um, There's some... Undertones that Nolan and, or sorry, that Charlie and DJ might not want to talk about those contract situations either. So uh, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about that, as well as is David Dahl breaking out of his slump. We'll know that hopefully by Thursday hopefully. when we re- record the next <laughs> podcast. Signs are very, very good in that regard, uh, and then we're going to really uh, dive in and see is Ryan McMahon done enough over the first two plus weeks of the cactus league schedule to cement himself in that first base role or do we still need to see more all of that will be on the thursday edition of the blake street irregulars podcast presented by tap 14 i am casey light thank you so much for listening